Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest. I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, yesterday was, of course, the celebration of Martin Luther King Day. And for many conservatives, this is a time where they kind of talk about Martin Luther King and his vision and his dream and, you know, kind of how the conservatives or the liberals or someone might oppose or, or support it. But today we're going to get a little more into what Martin Luther King actually said. Was Martin Luther King a natural conservatives? Is he really an icon that conservatives can hold up and say we are kind of part of this movement and this vision? That's what we're going to be going over today. And my guest today is Ryan Turnipseed. Thanks for joining me, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure when I'm here. Yeah, Ryan is somebody who's got a his own YouTube channel, and he writes over at the Old Glory Club. He's one of the uh, officers over there and writes for their Substack. so you should definitely check out his stuff. And while he is a young gentleman, he's a gentleman who is very well-versed in history, especially history that people don't normally study. So he's definitely a good person to help us kind of unpack, uh, unpack this uh, excavation of uh, Martin Luther King and kind of what his beliefs were, what he said, where he stood on the issues. So like I said, obviously Monday we had this celebration, Martin Luther King Day, and there was the uh, unveiling of the really hideous statue, right? I'm sure you saw the uh, the statue there that they built, the, the embrace um, that uh, kind, kind of looks like it, it might be a, a kind of a vulgar body part, but it is a very <laughs> odd choice to honor uh, dr king with that statue yeah yeah potentially phallic i had to ask our artist friends you know what even was it because all the pictures that i saw i couldn't make what the actual thing being depicted was i had no clue what it was i saw hands saw a weird thing with two hands coming out of it it was really weird yeah if you catch it at the right angle it certainly looks uh looks kind of lewd um which was very confusing to people uh but uh, you know like i said we a lot of people today uh talk about martin luther king and his legacy there's pretty much a battle over the left and right over what his legacy was and who is the true inheritor of that legacy and it's always kind of odd because i think martin luther king had a lot of things to say to the right to conservatives and a lot of people i think you know might be surprised about what those positions were because a lot of people have kind of gone back and attributed positions to martin luther king that he kind of explicitly said he did not hold so we're going to go through some of that historical evidence uh today as we do that and i just want to make it clear at the beginning that you know you can acknowledge the historical facts and about martin luther king jr and his political positions and his orientation while still you know kind of focusing on that one thing that a lot of i think conservatives had you know from i had the i have a dream speech the one that everyone loves to quote you know judging someone on the content of their character and the color of their skin and i do hope that is how people treat individuals i do think that is the right way to treat individuals but that wasn't the only thing that martin luther king jr said and so when we treat it like that's the only thing the man said it gives a distorted picture of kind of who he was and what he believed and kind of where uh his position is in both politics and in history so we're going to take a look at a few of those things uh, so the first thing i want to look at is uh, King's uh, focus on equal rights, because this is what a lot of conservatives base, I think, their idea and their support of King on, is that Martin Luther uh, King Jr. really did not believe 
he believed in a colorblind society. He believed in a society where everyone is equal. There is no special protections or any kind of advantage given to different groups. He would have been against affirmative action. He would have been against wokeness. He would have been against, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But from Martin Luther King Jr.'s own quotes, I don't necessarily think, think that's the case. Ryan, what did he say? about kind of these topics well before you get into explicitly what he said um mm -hmm. you're, there's a trap that some conservatives fall into and they will pull up quotes from like right before he was shot and it basically the only argument you will ever hear from people is yeah but he might have been going crazy at that point you know he that might have, might have been what he actually believed that wasn't his true legacy it was right at the end of his life um so really you can start way back at who was he supporting uh, what was he? Uh, what was he working towards uh, with government and all this other stuff? Um, and you saw that he had very kind words to say about uh, Kennedy's vice president upon ascending to the office of the president, um, Lyndon B. Johnson and his administration. Now, quite famously, they laid the groundwork multiple times uh, through various pieces of legislation um, that uh, would would make legal affirmative action. You know, basically you were forcing the country to go from some states having, you know, a segregated uh, public sphere, some states having, a, you know, no law at all. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's administration uh, basically changed the legal framework across the entire country um, to allow things like affirmative action. Um, and if you don't believe me, one of the first places that you see this is actually in the immigration system uh, where they abolish things like quotas and start bringing in specific people from specific countries because they were underrepresented or they had alleged uh, suppression uh, on their immigration. Uh, King supported this administration and every single time that there was a civil rights bill uh, that was being passed through Congress, the House, the Senate, and then eventually reaching the president, um, he had nothing but kind words to say about these things. Um, you know, quite famously in a lot of his speeches, he was a big proponent of uh, multiculturalism uh, which might come as a shock to some, because to conservatives, that's a dirty word. Um, but you see this uh, this idea really popularized by King himself, especially in the 60s, uh, where he's uh, talking about, you know, the need for a more pacifist foreign policy uh, is, is what he was writing on at the time, um, specifically because he said, you know, there's no difference from these specific races or nationalities or ethnicities, except for the fact that these other ones have been, you know, subjugated for the longest time. Um, King wasn't exactly a uh, libertarian, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, so his solution to this oppression wasn't to just let them sort of reform, let them rebuild their communities and whatnot if they had indeed been destroyed. Um, it was to use government support uh, to sort of uh, re-establish uh, re them in a higher position than they otherwise would have reached, um, which lent him, lent him to uh, support the other part of the Johnson administration and all of his uh, cohorts uh, with the Great Society programs. So I don't really know that we can say he was for colorblindness because if anyone has a basic understanding of the Great Society programs, they, in their names and in their actions, target specific communities by race. In the other direction, of course, uh, you know, we have to lift up this black neighborhood right here out of poverty because they're black and they're impoverished because of segregation or some other justification that they would come up with. And so King went right along with all of this and oftentimes supported it. Um, you only really find a sort of appeal to colorblindness uh, earlier on, and that's only to kind of, you know, get the idea through the door. Um, you know, his famous uh, speech in Washington 
uh, was nowhere near the last speech that he gave. Uh, in right. fact, it was one of his first ones. Uh, that's the one that many people will point to where he says, look, he doesn't care about skin color. He wants you to judge by character. Um, but this isn't what he kept with. You know, the idea developed as time went on, as most thinkers do with their ideas. It would be quite insane to expect someone to hold the exact same position for, you know, years, let alone a decade. Um, so, you know, it, to summarize, you could say conservatives kind of look at King when he's in Washington and he's giving his famous speech about his dream. And they kind of just freeze him there and pretend for the entire rest of his life in his political speeches and his social speeches and his speeches on foreign policy um, that, you know, he just stayed static when that's just not the case. And by all means, I would invite you to go read them. Uh, unfortunately, today I'm pressed for time. Uh, otherwise, I would, uh, you know, go through you with them or go through them with you, uh, which, you know, I've done a couple of times on my own channel. <laughs> Yeah, so if you want to see people, you know, kind of uh, go at that length, uh, Ryan has done the legwork there. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's important for people to understand that even if, again, he did sincerely, you know, hold a belief of of kind of, in theory, colorblindness at some point, I think that meant something very different to King than it would to Republicans today, right? Even while he's advocating for this, the, his way to get there like you said, I think is equity, right? That that the 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 way to achieve that that colorblindness is you get everyone to equity first, and then colorblindness happens. But of course, we know the distance from here to there is a really difficult and ugly process, um, and that has had very deleterious effects on our uh, on our society, and still has not solved the vast majority of these problems in many ways they're worse and so you you can see king calling for uh racial quotas in things like his you know his bus boycotts right like the the these uh companies must employ a certain percentage of for instance the black community before there's any kind of justice here and so i we need to see a very specific representation a very specific quote his call was not for I only want qualified people. And if those people happen to be of a particular race, that's great. And that'll kind of naturally flow outward. That was not his, his assertion. His assertion was the quota first. I want to see the representation first. And then maybe we get to this point of, of kind of colorblindness. But, but, you know, and like you said, that, that might not even have been the goal later on as his views evolved. But the point is that I think his definition of, uh, that approach and the definition that conservatives hold up and apply to him today when they're quoting the I have a dream speech is very different because it's very clear from King's own words that he did actually directly uh, support affirmative action quotas, the kinds of things that are the very basis of these diversity, equity, inclusion policies that now conservatives are so against today. Right. And, you know, something that might speak to conservatives is that he didn't just immediately, it's not like he flipped a switch and suddenly he went from one all the way to the other. Um, the first instances that you hear this, he's talking about it on a more international scale, uh, kind of like you would hear from Bobby Kennedy at the time, where he's talking about the need for the United States uh, to prop up and support, you know, the poor, you know, decolonizing countries in Africa and Asia and all this, uh, all the other uh, uh, sort of poorer areas of the world. Um King basically echoed those exact same things. In fact, in this one specific case, despite their uh, animosity towards each other, um, their rhetoric sounds almost identical. So this is the bridge you're looking for if you go back and read him. Um, you know, you hear the I Have a Dream speech, and then, you know, as, the t as time goes on throughout the 60s, 
uh, things like the Vietnam War becomes less and less popular. And he starts talking about the need for the United States to you know, prop up other races in different parts of the world um, because they have been oppressed by whites for so long. You know, sort of like the exploitation argument that you would hear from your average lefty professor in the modern day. Mm-hmm. And then this gets applied domestically as time goes on yet again, um, where King starts to you know see what, what could happen with the Great Society programs. He starts to see where the political direction is going. He starts to examine his own beliefs, perhaps. Um, and then you start, you start seeing him uh, apply it to the communities here at home, and the cities especially. All right. So the second thing um, that I think a lot of conservatives are under the impression is that um, that Martin Luther King would have been a fan of the free market, that he would have been a capitalist or he would have, again, let the market fix these problems that, you know, that the vision Martin Luther King had is that you have this colorblind society and then, you know, the natural forces of the economy or, or, you know, just whatever would kind of right these wrongs once this had put into play, been put into place. But actually it seems that not only was, you know, uh, King not of this mindset, he was pretty regularly in communication or supported by elements of the communist movement. And this is not to smear King as himself an active communist, but you have to wonder if you are supported by these elements, you're regularly in contact with them, and you clearly have uh, an interest in redistributive policies when it comes to your fixes for racial inequality then are you really a, a kind of a free market capitalist at the end of the day, right? Right. So you can go at this from two different angles, uh, or, well, you know, two broadly different angles. One, you can see what he actually said on the issues of, say, the free market, a capitalistic society, and whatnot else. And then you can look at the friends that he kept, um, which I'm, I'm sure we can get into at greater length later. Yeah. Um, but... You know, this is something else that conservatives don't do when they sort of freeze King and his I have a dream state and then just pretend that's what he did for the rest of his life. Um, I believe it was 66 or something like that. Um, He was writing articles for various larger newspapers throughout the country. And a lot of the things he was tackling, if you know the American political climate at the time, was once again the Great Society, uh, which most conservatives in the modern day recognize to be very destructive, uh, quite rightly so. Um, you know, you have famous uh, conservative intellectuals like Thomas Sowell saying that it's single-handedly responsible for destroying black social cohesion in the United States. You know, most people have probably heard the talking points. Uh, King at the time, however, um, I believe he wrote for The Nation is what it was. Mm. Uh, it was an article for The Nation. Um, he, uh, he was basically lambasting Congress, the president, and everyone else. You know, a very radically left Congress and president from any other point in American history for not working fast enough and radically enough in their economic policies. Um, And if I'm remembering correctly from the, uh, from the speech itself or from the article, rather um, he's, you know, lambasting Congress for not sending enough money to slum neighborhoods in, in cities. Now, if he was really this American who really believed in, you know, the power of individuals and their own actions to better themselves and their communities you know, some conservatives paint King to be sort of like a small government believer and all this other stuff. Um, the federal government providing, you know, obscene amounts of money to cities for specific uh, neighborhoods with racial identities doesn't really fit that bill. 
In fact, it sounds like something you would hear coming out of uh, you know, New York representatives in the modern day, uh, perhaps a AOC type. Um, you know, that, that's just one example. Uh, you can go uh, find that yourself, uh, or perhaps we could put it up here. I, I don't quite know what we want to do there. Um, and then you can look at the friends that he kept. Who was he being advised by? Because if you had these major public intellectuals or speakers or uh, celebrities like MLK, they don't do all this work alone. Very rarely do they do all this work alone. They have advisors, speech writers, teams, committees, inner circles, and whatnot else. Um, and I don't know if you're ready uh, for the links that I sent you, Aaron, but um, you know, we, we do know who was in King's inner circle, um, and they weren't exactly free market conservatives either. <laughs> Yeah, you sent me several links and uh, to Wikipedia entries that are right. about different people who have communist affiliations that he was connected with here. Right, and Wikipedia, for one reason in particular, um, I hope that your audience doesn't think that I'm lazy or something. Oh, he just went to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, that was a very calculated decision. Uh, mm -hmm. Wikipedia is not known for painting civil rights leaders in a negative light. Nor are they known for being right right wing. Uh, they aren't segregationist from the 60s. Uh, you know, they, they are very favorable to the civil rights movement in particular. And it should strike one as odd whenever Wikipedia starts describing King's inner circle and they have a whole section where it's, oh, by the way, um, the FBI at this point in time figured out that, you know, King's, uh, you know, senior most advisor was a major financial coordinator for the Communist Party of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. you know, the guy that was advising King on his social policy, foreign policy, um, most likely ghostwriting speeches, also a personal friend of his, so you know, other influence in that way, um, was affiliated with the Communist Party USA. Um, I, I don't know about you, uh, but, but the conservative claim that King was a... Uh, you know, more conservative than liberal. You know, it's just the, it's the evil liberals nowadays that have gone too far to the left. I don't really feel like the claim holds up too well. Um, and that's just one person. Uh, I sent you a second link as well. Yeah, uh, which basically, real quick. Yeah, basically just says the same thing. Um, <laughs> like it's, uh, I, don't, I don't really know what more to say on that. It should speak for himself. If your best friends are senior members in the Communist Party in the 1960s, you know, this is... It's not like they. Uh, it's not like the modern day where perhaps their history class wasn't so good. They were taught by perhaps socialistic prof uh, professors or teachers in their grade school. Um, everyone at this point in time knew what the Soviet Union was. They knew about what was coming out of it. Most of these Communist Party members, in fact, uh, tended to visit the Soviet Union and had great things to say about it after leaving. Mm -hmm. um, these are the people that uh, you know uh, Martin Luther King surrounded himself with. Um, so I. I don't want to, you know, over make a point here. I feel like that should hopefully speak for itself. Nope, absolutely. So, you know, again, whether he actively completely embraced the ideology of communism, it's very clear that he had no problem, you know, with, with kind of having these people, as you said, as key parts of his inner circle. He also spoke specifically about kind of his opponent, uh, his opposition to specific uh, parts of the free market here. I think I've got one with his 1966 speech. I'm sorry, you didn't, this is the one you already talked about, did Ah, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, we can pull that up if- uh, Okay, let me know, go It would only make the point better. Um, yeah. 
if you want to like control F, the paragraph that I would be referencing, because I also pulled this up a minute ago, uh, would be only a few weeks ago is how the uh, sentence starts. Um, okay, then we might have different quotes. Well, why don't oh, you okay. go ahead and, yeah. and read um, the quote then? So yeah, I have right here an article from The Nation, um, 1966. Uh, Dr. King himself is talking about the state of you know government domestic policy, specifically on economics, <clears throat> and he says this. Only a few weeks ago, the president presented a plan to Congress for rebuilding entire slum neighborhoods. With other elements of this program, it would, in his words, make the decaying cities of the present into the masterpieces of our civilization. Typical rhetoric out of the great society. This plan is imaginative. It embodies social vision and properly defines racial discrimination as a central evil. However, the ordinary Negro... Uh, the ordinary Negro, though no social or political analyst, will be skeptical. Uh, he knows he knows how many laws exist in northern states and cities that prohibit discrimination in housing, in education, and employment. He knows how many overlapping commissions exist to enforce the terms of these laws, and he know how he knows how he lives. The ubiquitous discrimination in his daily life tells him that more laws on paper, no matter how breathtaking their terminology, will not guarantee that he will live in a masterpiece of civilization. Laws affirming Negro rights have in every case been circumvented by ingenious evasions, which render them void in practice. Laws that affect the whole population, draft laws, income tax laws, traffic laws, do work, even though they are unpopular. But laws passed for the Negro's benefit are so widely unenforced that it is a mockery to call them laws. The missing ingredient is no longer the will of governments to enact legislation. What is absent is the will to make it operative. There is a double standard in the enforcement of law, a double standard in the respect for particular laws. So that's Martin Luther King right there saying the federal government is not doing enough. The federal government has a lot of fancy words to say, but it's not acting on it. We need more. The federal government needs to act more. It needs to be more forceful. He's already in there admitting just the complete web of bureaucracy that's surrounding the average person's life in these northern cities. You know, the ones that don't even have the segregation in law to deal with beforehand. And he's saying, yeah, but we could do much more. You know, this isn't exactly conservative rhetoric. Hopefully people have noticed. Yeah, I, I see uh, Harry Robinson in here from Low Cedars. Harry, hey, thanks for coming by. He said uh, he disagreed with communism being atheistic and consequentialist. He did not disagree with its economic program. He applauded its desire for social justice. And I think you can get this from another section of his from a speech of his in 1966. Here I have, uh, he says, you can't talk about solving the economic problem of the Negro without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first pay, uh, saying profit must be taken out of the slums. You're really tampering and getting on dangerous ground because you are messing with, uh, with folk then. You're messing with captains of industry. Now this means we are treading into difficult waters because it really means what you're saying is there's something wrong with capitalism. There must be a better distribution of wealth and maybe America must move towards a democratic socialism. So again, people might or might not have some you know level of uh, of uh, sympathy with that language. The point is not again to say, hey, you know, he's entirely wrong about there being you know some issues with with capitalism in different in different parts of this or captive in, captains of industry at times. The point is when kind of your mainstream GOP conservative says, well, he was just about having government get out of the way and stop oppressing people so then everyone could just be equal. 
it's very clear that actually uh, that MLK had very specific ideas about how the government should rectify the situation. And it was not getting out of the way. It was actively taking uh, steps for things like redistribution, especially through the programs that you were talking about, the incentivization of different things through things like the great society. So that's a key part of what we're talking about here. So the next thing I wanted to focus on was a little bit of the idea that, uh, King was a a very ardent Christian whose uh, ideas were completely born out of kind of his respect for uh, kind of uh, Christian doctrine, uh, uh, you know, Orthodox Christian doctrine, and that he, you know, these are the motivating factors behind behind kind of all of his actions. Uh, So there's a couple different ways we could go on this, but kind of what do do you want to touch on first in that area? Well, uh, you know, uh... I, I did a lot of mock trial stuff, so my first instinct is to go to what the persons themselves say. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, I've sent you a link to the Gospel Coalition. Once again, chosen very deliberately because you know most conservative evangelicals would know that that's a, uh, you know, the Gospel Coalition is probably about as conservative evangelical as Mitt Romney is a conservative Republican. You know, just a, <laughs> hopefully an yeah. analogy that you know they would understand there. Immediately makes um, sense, yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, that link to the Gospel Coalition, point six in particular, um, we have these very, very sympathetic evangelicals um, talking about what King himself believed. Um, for those that don't know uh, how this stuff works, you know, how do you become an educated pastor? Um, depending on the qualifications, you eventually get to seminary, which is basically a pastor's college, and you write the equivalent of a master's thesis in order to get your certification or degree or whatever equivalent. Um King went to what can be called a very theologically liberal seminary. Um, that is, it was more on the uh, interpretive, uh, historicist side. It wasn't uh, fundamental. Uh, these would, in the modern day, uh, you might look to the uh, the largest Methodist church in the United States, uh, the ELCA, uh, the Unitarian Universalists, uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church of the USA. Uh, you know, these are all sort of like the inheritors of this theological liberalism uh, for those Christians that do care about this point. Um, he was in the same exact discipline, um, and he has a, a thesis that he wrote and a variety of other papers that we have because we collect papers of public intellectuals, and he's in there um, specifically pitting himself as the opposite of Christian fundamentalists. Uh, the Gospel Coalition has very, very kindly referred to him as unorthodox. Uh, yeah. uh, but if you read just a little bit farther, um, he is denying the divinity of Christ. Um, he is denying the virgin birth. Um, he's denying a resurrection. And then at the bottom, uh, this little paragraph, if you don't mind, I could read it out just to uh, you know show people exactly what he believes. Mm-hmm. Um, he says... Uh, Others doctrines uh, should, uh, such as supernatural, such as a supernatural plan of salvation, the Trinity, the substitutionary theory of the atonement, and the second coming of Christ, are all quite prominent in fundamentalist thinking. Such are the views of the fundamentalist, and they reveal that he is opposed to theological adaptation to social and cultural change. He sees a progressive scientific age as a retrogressive spiritual age. Amid change all around, he is willing to preserve certain ancient ideas, even though they are contrary to science. Um, So that is King, in his own words, in his own paper, for the seminary that he went to, uh, denying the Trinity, denying a, you know, know, providence, you know, God having a plan for people's salvation, 
um, denying that Christ died for sins. That's what those fancy words substitutionary theory of atonement mean. Um, when Christians tell you Christ died for your sins, that's what those fancy words mean. He's denying them, and he's denying a second coming of Christ. Um, I don't know about you, um, but if I said that in just any church around here, I would probably get kicked out. But if I said I really liked what MLK had to say about Christianity, they would probably laud it. Right. Um, which is a major contradiction. Yes. Yeah, no, I, again, I think that's very huge. A lot of people want, because King, of course, used biblical language, he used theological language. And so many people are desperate for, I think, a uh, acknowledgement of the importance of that kind of language and that kind of determining factor in your morality, which it absolutely should be. They rush to affirm King without understanding, I think, again, anything beyond the I have a dream speech. I, I really think that's almost everything that anyone has ever heard of King uh, in, in you know, especially, you know, the public education system. People just don't hear much else. It's really funny because, you know, I, I did a quick Google search for, you know, the truth about Martin Luther King, that kind of thing. And they're, they're not right wing videos. It's a bunch of left wing um, progressive videos, all detailing everything we're talking about now. They they have exactly the same points we're making. They're simply praising them. They're they're excited about them. They're glad that actually right. this is who King was. He wasn't some reactionary Bible thumping, um, you know, uh, colorblind uh, guy. He he held a lot of the beliefs that are today advance under the umbrella of progressivism so they they have all the same facts they're bringing forward all the same points that we're pointing out now these things aren't really in high dispute as you can tell by the fact that they're easily quotable and attainable even on sources that are very left-leaning as you pointed out like wikipedia and others it, it, they are real things they're just celebrated instead of attacked um you know due, due to the fact that progressives like what they have to say right and you can uh I remember probably about a year ago when I was really looking into specifically the civil rights era for the first time. Um, I, you know, one of the questions I had is who really is publishing like the most MLK in the modern day? You know, who's republishing trying to get that word out? You know, the full unadulterated speeches that he just wrote. Because in a public school textbook or a class or something like that, um, as I'm sure you and I are both familiar with, um, you don't get the whole thing. You get excerpts, you might get clips from a speech something like that, things that put him in the best possible light. Um, the only places that I could really find just republishing him word for word in the modern day, um, and not to beat a dead horse, uh, was the Communist Party's website. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I'm not going yeah. to just say guilt by association, therefore, um, mm -hmm. but I will just leave you, the audience, with the question of if the only people that still endorse word for word everything that MLK still says, or, or says still to this day, is the Communist Party. Um, you might want to reevaluate a couple of things about who's being praised, what are their motives, uh, is this really what conservatives believe and should be idealizing? And so the next thing I wanted to get to was the idea that King was uh, was a super patriotic American, that, that at the end of the day, he really loved the country. And this was all about his hope that one day it would live up to its true promise uh, that he he believed deeply in the roots of the country, and it only it had gone astray. Much much as again the kind of the conservative narrative, and and one day it will bear out the promise of this. Um, and and there's a couple of things we can look at here. You know, he 
he did refer to the country as as one founded in genocide. He had attacks on the Declaration of Independence and its meaning for blacks since it was written by slave owners. Again, something that you would hear from somebody like Ibram X. Kendi or someone today. But he also had very unkind words for American foreign policy and those who who executed it. Now, again, you might be totally on board with this. You might say, look, I, I didn't like the Vietnam War. I don't like American policy now. I don't like America as a as an empire. But it's very clear that his feelings went beyond that. He had a different view of kind of uh, America and other Western nations role that, again, sounds very similar to what many college professors push today. Right. And uh, <laughs> there's two kinds of attacking imperialism. Um, if, if for people that aren't familiar with American history, um, after the Spanish-American War, the Americans took the Philippines. There was a, the big political divide after that was anti-imperialist versus imperialist. Mm -hmm. And you just need to read for five minutes either side to see they both really, really love the country. They love their people, they love their heritage, they love the country itself, and that's why they take the position that they take. So, you know, we, we see already anti-imperialism versus imperialism, you know, basically 1900, way predating civil rights. And then we get to the Vietnam War and the types that then take up the mantle of anti-imperialism. And the rhetoric turns much, much different um, because I'm sure anyone that has, is related to a veteran, someone that got drafted, didn't really want to even go over there to begin with. They just got told you have to go. Um, those people were treated absolutely terribly by left-wing activists in particular. Um, I, you know, the common narrative, uh, whether or not it's true, uh, something that apparently has a kernel of truth because people still tell it, especially the people that were there, uh, were that you would have left-wing activists that would show up to spit on them after they got home. You know, these people that were drafted against their will, not the, you know, gung-ho volunteers of previous wars. Mm -hmm. um, MLK, uh, I would be, I would hazard a guess that he didn't do any spitting. Um, but what he did was a lot of rhetorical, uh, very flowery rhetorical attacks against them. And every single time he would mention Vietnam, which was a lot of his repertoire, um, he would basically, you know, by association, syllogism and all these other rhetorical devices, um, say that anyone that fought in this war on the American side, way after the French were uh, involved in all this other stuff, you know, in our phase of the war, were colonizers, they were there killing babies, uh, they were there burning down houses for the fun of it. They were killing more of our Vietnamese than the communists and all this other things that we now know are not actually based in reality, but were rather, you know, leftist talking points of the 1960s. And this is really why uh, I wanted to hit home on this is because the modern conservative movement, most conservatives nowadays, most sensible people will say that they want to take their positions based off of reality, based off of facts and not feelings. But if you look at the rhetoric coming out of Vietnam, or coming out of MLK about Vietnam, he's not really focusing on facts. Already a very anti-conservative value, if I'm to believe the rhetoric of conservatives today. And instead, he attacks them quite viciously. And you, um, I believe it's American rhetoric is where you can go and find a lot of King's speeches on Vietnam in particular. Um, but we can get a summary here that Aaron has pulled up um, from Stanford. Once again... Ivy League universities, not known for being the most right-wing hotbeds in the country. Right. Um, and when he summarizes, uh, this summarizes King's view of nationalism. Um, there's a whole language debate about nationalism or patriotism and all this other stuff. Um, 
Most conservatives will say they are patriotic, and they will describe what to a leftist is nationalism. That's just how the language games work. Um, nationalism is the scary word that you're not allowed to hold, and they will persecute you if you do hold to it. Patriotism is the allowed word, uh, but we don't really agree on what it means as a society, so it's who knows what it means. Um, Martin Luther King attacked what he called nationalism, um, and he used the age-old attack of saying that it was Adolf Hitler's ideology. So you mm -hmm. got you know strike number one there for the conservatives. He's appealing to Hitler. You Who's know, basically like Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he says that the McCarthyite attacks were uh, the, you know, a manifestation of nationalism, uh, which, you know, if you, if you read through it, I'm of the opinion McCarthy had mo more right than wrong. Um, mm. Some in the audience might disagree. Um, but something that wasn't controversial at the time, you have to keep in mind, um, in the 50s and in the 60s, was that, you know, there probably were communists in high places that were influencing the country. That was never denied on the in the media, uh, in the uh, Senate, in the House, or any of these other places. It was just the degree of which they would uh, disagree about. It was the witch hunting that they didn't like, not the fact that there might have been. King here, however, is taking a very radical stance in saying that any inquiries into communist activity in American society are evil nationalism, <laughs> which yes. doesn't sound conservative to me, but... Sounds like an MSNBC host. You're yeah, not allowed yeah, exactly. to ask these questions. These, you know, th this just means you're a secret nationalist. Yeah, you're a crypto, crypto fascist, right? And the, the, that's the actual indication here. And by the way, if you need some documentation of um, of uh, uh, communists high up in government positions, there's plenty of good books. But you can go to James Vernon's uh, Web of Deceit, uh, right. or is it Deceit Deception? I'm trying to remember at the off the top of my head. I remember it as deceit, but yeah. I'm not the Burnham expert. <laughs> yeah, but but I but uh, the, but he lays out in detail large numbers of different people in all kinds of different uh, government departments who had uh, explicitly these connections. It's not it's not some speculation. It's not some wild-eyed conspiracy theory. It's easily documentable, even back when Burnham was doing it, and he is even more so today. Uh, but yeah, he attacks this idea of of nationalism. Um, he goes into specifically the need for uh or you know says that it's a uh, uh, you can't worship god and the nation uh which you know of course is just a smear pretending that someone who cares about their nation can't possibly care about god and he's implying right. here pretty not just implying but really following up on a regular basis saying basically we have to be globalists we have to right. have this global view and, and that's the major point that i was going to hit very quickly here mm -hmm. um is that he goes beyond what even what commentators i hear today anyways he doesn't just stop at nationalism evil and then let the viewer decide what few options they have which one they want he says there is a moral imperative for internationalism or globalism um on that sort of uh the last quote of the last paragraph starts at beyond the calling of race or nation and creed uh the full quote is beyond the calling of race or nation or creed is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. This I believe to be the privilege and burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties broader and deeper than nationalism. So he is saying there is a moral imperative for you, the American, to you know put yourself on exactly the same level as anyone else in the world, um, which hopefully we can break past the language games just really quickly here. And I can make the claim that that attacks both patriotism and nationalism this sort of global equality, you are not allowed to value your land better than anyone else's because, you know, it's your heritage, your own, you grew up there, you're not allowed to like that. Um, King is saying that you have a burden 
to just be in equal brotherhood with everyone else. Uh, a sort of a, you know, a Christian language uh, internationalism is what he's appealing to here. Absolutely. So I wanted to start with those things first, because I want to be clear that I've seen people talk about King and his history and his legacy. And sometimes people who are trying to show the other side go directly to personal attacks about him. And the reason I started with ideology is I wanted to be clear that this is first and foremost an ideological gap between King and conservatism, that his values, his beliefs, his outlook, his views were much, much, much closer to the average college professor, the average, you know, uh, civil rights uh, activist, or, or obviously he was a civil rights activist, but the, the average um, uh, social justice activist today, his views were far closer to the ideas of something like somebody like Ibram X Kendi than they are to any kind of conservative. He had very specific attacks uh, towards people like Barry Goldwater. He was not someone who had any respect for the conservative movement, for the principles of the conservative movement, for the ideas that are today attributed to him by people in the conservative movement. And so before we move on to his personal issues, which we I think are important because of the almost the deified nature that it's placed on King today. I just want to make it clear that this is not a dirty laundry session. This is not us right. slinging mud to and poisoning the well before you interact with King's own words. That's why we took you through King's own words, his own speeches, his own ideology, his own you know uh, willingness to place himself in connection with different individuals before we get to then his personal life. Because uh, I don't like the personal attacks because at the end of the day, personal life, you know, there are many flawed leaders who are great, right? Like, so just going through the personal flaws of people who led great lives is a sure way to make sure that no one ever has heroes. So I want to make that very clear before we move forward, that that is the main point of departure that I think conservatives should take away when they rethink their relationship to Martin Luther King Jr. and kind of his, his ideology. That said, because of the deification of King, because so many people have placed him kind of in a pedestal, he was this man of God, he was leading these this, this movement of moral righteousness and has no connection to this kind of stuff. I think it does make sense to take a moment and look at the way he behaved, behaved himself personally, because um, there are some very, very serious charges. Um, and they're ones that I think speak to the priorities of King and kind of his true connection to maybe his Christianity and general morality, uh, which a lot of people kind of hold him up on. So right. and let's go with, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just one interjection. This is only necessary because people like the modern conservative movement make him out to be a moral leader, someone that right. you should emulate in your personal life. Yes. Uh, otherwise, this would be completely irrelevant, yes, but the claims that are made in the modern day make this relevant that uh, hopefully by the end of it, you should know that you probably shouldn't emulate MLK in his personal life. Right. So the first one I want to go to is, is the more mild one. It's the one uh, that I think um, is worth acknowledging, but isn't you know, in and of itself the, the end of the world, which is his plagiarism, right? Uh, it seems like both in his doctoral uh, work and in other places, including speeches, he was willing to lift uh, stuff. I don't, I don't 
really begrudge him so much in his speeches. I think iterating on rhetoric is part of that. And in some cases, he didn't even write some parts of his own speeches. So is that his fault? Is that the fault of his speech writers? You know, I, I don't hold that one so much against him. But, you know, if you're going to do a, a, a doctoral work in theology, plagiarism is probably not the best place to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, because he is also an academic um, right. and and a, you know, a national writer. Um, speeches you can excuse because you know most people will have a speech writer or a rhetorical consultant or some something to make sure that your speeches are professional. If you're writing for publication, writing a thesis, writing for uh, you know a seminary or something like that, uh, plagiarism becomes a very dark stain of dishonesty um, because you are supposed to be contributing something new that comes from you so that you can get certified or or recognized or whatnot else published. Um, and if you plagiarize, uh, you are taking credit from someone for your own and also lying to other people by saying that you're better than you actually are. Um, you know, once again, this wouldn't be a problem if King and the modern conservative movement and all this other stuff didn't make himself out to be an academic or, you know, a, you know, a theologian or anything like that. But that's that's just the way that the cards have fallen. Um, so uh, where did you want to start with that? Uh, like I said, we don't we don't have to get too deep into the into the plagiarism because, like I, I said, I feel like that's that's more of the minor one. Um, if you want specific examples, you can. Uh, it's just there there is a certain percentage of his doctoral work that does seem like it was plagiarized. And again, you know, those things appear in the speeches, but uh, I didn't like I said, I don't want to go. The, the, the receipts are there, but I don't want to get too exhaustive because I don't feel like this is the meat of, of the point here. It's more of a passing thing to to acknowledge than a, some kind of slam dunk on King's character. Right. And funnily enough, you can still see this from those same factions in the modern day. Uh, if you want to. If, if someone, uh, some enterprising individual out there kept a list of times that public figures have plagiarized other people, yeah. um, I would bet you that that list could probably make a book that looks like a congressional record, you know, something about the size of a, of a person's head or a laptop or something like that. Uh, it would be a long list. Your sitting president plagiarized uh, Neil Kinnock, the Labour Party leader in the UK, when he was running for uh, Congress the first time. Mm. Uh, happens all the time. Uh, as you said, a small mark against King, but one to keep in mind is fundamentally dishonest. So the larger issue, the one that I think is is far more damning um, as for King as a moral leader is uh, his sexual conduct. Um, it's been uh, sealed, I think specifically the the FBI files are sealed until I think 2027, if I have that correct. Um, it was a number of, it was like a, I think a little less than a decade after they were originally supposed to be publicized, uh, just because FBI policy um, and other state documents, if something is classified, I believe it is, uh, was it about 80 years or something like that until they can be made uh, publicly uh, declassified. Um, King's was supposed to expire, I, it was three years ago, I think, because I think I was still in high school whenever, when I was waiting for the documents to release. Mm-hmm only for the government to announce, oh, by the way, we're extending the classification period on this. Uh, you don't get to see this now until the late 2020s, um, which is kind of what they've done all the time. Yeah, and if I, if I uh, am correct on this, I believe Sam Francis in his article on the MLK holiday said that uh, it was specifically requested 
by members of Congress uh, that uh, these records be unsealed early so that they could review them before voting for the Martin Luther King holiday, but that was denied. Uh, specifically, um, you know, he, they felt like it was important to have that clarification and understanding of King's background before he was, you know, raised to the level of like George Washington having his own national holiday. Specifically raised to the level of the old uh, Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jackson, uh, because that was what the Martin Luther King Day replaced, um, mm. which a lot of public controversy over them. But the purpose of the day was that they, in their life, were, you know, morally upstanding, a uh, sort of a role model for Americans, if you will, um, which most reputable, reputable historians wouldn't dispute that. Um, those are both seen as some of the cleaner figures to come out of the South. Um, that was the original uh, holiday that was there in most states, uh, only to be replaced by MLK Day, uh, which, of course, if you're replacing a holiday of two very established figures in American history with MLK, Suddenly, it makes a lot more sense why these lawmakers wanted to know what was he doing in his personal life exactly. Uh, deep State well, says you're denied. Well, and that's a really important thing to know. It's a really important detail to know for people who recognize that many of the statues currently being erected are being erected over the places where statues of Southern leaders or founding fathers, in many cases, were taken down. And so the the holiday itself is an original replacement of statues it is an original tearing down of one honoring of one set of people specifically to replace it with someone else to kind of show to to, to signal a particular message but that said um what do these we what since these are sealed how do we know about king's personal conduct and what does it reveal Right. So we do, I believe, have a transcript that was released or leaked or something like that, along with other, you know, retired FBI officials that have just come out and say, you right. know, in summary, here's what you can find in these uh, records once they're released. Um, so the same way you would find out anything about other sort of intelligence or deep state activities, um, leaks, um, people that have kind of uh, hacking work, I guess you could call it if you wanted to get the general idea out there and retired officials coming out and saying, this is what's actually happening in there. Um, I'm sure that most people in the audience and you yourself, Aaron, could think of many other cases in which this is how we've come to know things. Uh, you know, quite, quite famously, you might look back to Edward Snowden because he wasn't the only one doing that at the time. And in fact, you've had other people from the government come out and basically just say, yeah, we were doing this. Uh, it probably wasn't legal, but that's, uh, this is the law now. And, uh, we're going to prosecute anyone leaking, uh, leaking these previously illegal activities so now the the uh activities that have been leaked uh there are allegations of up to i believe 40 extramarital affairs um by king uh not only with women uh you know in in kind of the normal way that affairs have but specifically with the purchasing of pop prostitutes in some cases allegedly with money from the funding of that, that was supposed to go to the civil rights movement or, or, you know, through, through religious organizations. Right. And the other thing, yeah, because King got most of his money through, uh, you know, Christians donating to him. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it, what was it? Southern, uh, Southern coalition of religious leaders or something, uh, something like that. Uh, it was a pastor's coalition, basically the more liberal minded. One. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more liberal minded, uh, civil rights uh pastors basically uh which king was the main one 
Uh, they had a lot of money to go around. Uh, we mentioned earlier that one one of the main people in his inner circle was a, a communist party financier, basically. Um, you know, he he had money to play around with, uh, and if he didn't have it, he could definitely get more of it. Um, there there probably wasn't a major institution that would withhold funds from him at this point in time, and. As he mentioned, he would hire prostitutes, uh, some of which are allegedly underaged, uh, or were allegedly underaged at the time, uh, most of which, uh, <laughs> that, that should speak for itself, hopefully. Right. Um, underage prostitutes, prostitutes in general. Um, there is an allegation that uh, he sat by while one of his friends uh, raped a, a woman. I can't remember if she was a prostitute or not. Um and he sat I by believe she and, wasn't in the story, but yeah, right. either way, it's it's immaterial to the point of that he stood by while that happened, yeah. Yeah, stood by while it happened. One of his friends, and I, if I remember correctly, I think he was encouraging him half the time. Uh, yeah, giving advice. Yeah, Yeah. so, yeah. and that, that was caught on tape. And this is the specific one that the media focused on a few years ago, uh, because their biggest argument for why these things shouldn't be revealed to the public was it will destroy his legacy. Not it's fake or it was slanderous or illegally obtained or something like that, it will mm -hmm. destroy his legacy, uh, which that's the standard for truth now. I hope everyone understands. Uh, it doesn't matter what actually happened. It matters what they want to have happened. So um, that that's the damning stuff. Um, you have other um, publicly illicit activities, should we say, that was very common for the civil rights movement. Um, you can look at uh, court records that were given in sort of like on the state level after these civil rights marches. Um, you find a great deal of uh, cases, people testifying to public urination, defecation, sexual acts in public in churches, on church stairways and all this other stuff. Um, King, it seems likely, uh, participated in some of those activities. Um, also copious amounts of drug use, uh, which was common uh for those leaders and for his demographic uh so that those were the ones that i know personally because this is usually where i don't focus as much uh mm -hmm. just because i'm i'm more concerned usually with the historical narrative that gets trotted um i uh it doesn't matter to me so much if someone says that he's a good person or not just because of what we do know uh that's obviously not the case <laughs> Yeah, and, and like I said, that's why I wanted to start with the stuff yeah. that was more historically verifiable, more heavily documented. I didn't want to lead with a lot of speculation on those kind of things. And so it's okay. We don't need to get deeply into that. If you do want some of this documented, uh, kind of friend of the show, Pedro Gonzalez, uh, had an article in his Substack where he lays out some of the documentation for some of these activities as well. So, so if you, you know, again, they, they are not uh, verbatim in his words, stuff like we have with some of the stuff we led with, but if you want to know more about that, you, you can check out Pedro's piece over at, at his Substack. stack. Um, I know, I know other people have that documentation as well, but we don't, again, I that's why I wanted to focus on the stuff that we can verify that we know for sure that is directly germane to the conservative movement and, and the beliefs of conservatives, because I wanted that to be the primary focus of, of this division so that people who are talking about this, conservative leaders who are supporting this, who are kind of kind of blindly parroting the things that we've kind of heard are more familiar with some of the things that the King actually believed and the things he actually espoused. And this brings us to kind of the final thing I want to talk about because we're coming up on our hour here and we have a few super chats we need to get to. But the last thing is the need for conservatives 
to kind of retcon King as this conservative icon. I think that says something, right? I saw a tweet from Ben Shapiro yesterday saying, sure, Martin Luther King may have believed in, you know, affirmative, active, affirmative action and redistributive, you know, social justice, but that's what we're not, that's not what we're honoring him for today, right? And, and you see people, you see conservative leaders actively fight over the legacy. Well, we honor the real legacy of Martin Luther King and the left honors a fake legacy, a lie. But I think when we look at the documentation that we went over earlier, specifically his own quotes, his own writing, his own words, actually the left is far closer to honoring the actual legacy of Dr. King. And so the question is, I think for many people, is it a legacy worth honoring, right? Like, is it right. something that should be upheld? You, again, I think you can, I think you can honor the idea that people should be treated by the content of their character rather than their color of the skin without then saying this makes Martin Luther King Jr. a lion of morality and someone that everyone should emulate and that the conservative movement should deeply invest in as a key member of kind of their their pantheon of or their legacy right and so why do you think it's been so important for for republicans and democrats yeah. to fight over the legacy of king rather than conservatives who very clearly had inter, you know concerns about king's character uh, kind of, kind of saying, well, we agree with certain parts of things he said, but that doesn't mean that this is who people should model themselves after. Right. Uh, the most terse and the easiest way that I can put this is that there is no such thing as a right-wing conservative in the U.S. public sphere right now, at least as a public intellectual, uh, one of the major figures like Ben Shapiro. Um, they're leftovers of what we might call sort of like the new liberals or the old liberal or the, uh, sorry, the New Deal liberals uh, from the last century. Um, if you look at the old conservative movement, who MLK specifically talked against, you mentioned Barry Goldwater, um, but there were also Southern populists um, and uh, Midwestern and Northern isolationists and nationalists as well uh, that sort of formed what we might call a conservative coalition in the country. Um, and these three uh, groups had very opposing views. Um, the sort of Southern populists tended to be more internationalists, wanted more alliance and all this other stuff. Um, Goldwater and his more hardline Republicans, as they're kind of known now, uh, folk didn't really like that. They focused more on the deficit. Is this really necessary? And the sort of Midwestern, Northern isolationists and nationalists uh, did exactly what you would think they would. They really opposed the populist impulse for internationalism, but they really didn't like, you know, communism infiltrating the country. Um, which would explain uh, Senator McCarthy coming from the North, despite being very conservative. Uh, you know, you, you already see the breakdown of a modern historical narrative. All of this to say, MLK attacked each and every one of those uh, uh, factions that would later be marginalized as the 20th century went on, as the newer right, as the new conservative movement continued to betray them and continued to basically sideline them. And then what you're left with today is um, you know the left wing of the Democratic Party, which was already well into play by the 1960s, and you're left with the moderate to left wing of the Republican Party, because Barry Goldwater was unfashionable, um, the sort of uh, isolationist nationalist types uh, were too backwards and pig-headed to lead a national movement. We get really respectable people, 
uh, like uh, Mitt Romney or Ben Shapiro or whatnot else who say that they really don't like each other. They have very different views. Uh, but ultimately, they need to be fashionable and respectable. So they only agree with the revolution halfway instead of all the way. Uh, you know, the evil left over there wants to take you basically to the Soviet Union. The modern GOP and the conservative movement wants to take you halfway to the Soviet Union. It would be an analogy. So um, all of this to say, it's about optics to the conservative movement. It's about how they look. Um, they'll lose their very precious editorial titles. They'll lose their uh, public positions, their airtime, if they go against narratives like MLK. You can't be a real conservative and stay within sort of like the higher levels of media at this point in time. Uh, you will get attacked and marginalized and sidelined. You might be able to make a good, a good name for yourself. You won't lose necessarily, but you're not going to be hanging around in the same circles as the GOP, as the modern conservatives. And that, that's just because they, they aren't. You know, they aren't conservatives. They aren't the old GOP. Um, they've completely moved leftward. Uh, that, that's what I would say. And I, I'm sure you'd have your own astute observations to add. I mean, I, I think that's a it's a pretty good understanding. I think it's also that um, this issue has become so difficult. It's become so much of the overriding controlling issue of our time that conservatives have a very difficult time having any kind of uh, different uh, providing their own frame for the issue. They're unable to approach the issue in their own way, address the parts that maybe they do agree with, with the parts that have been completely distorted and move forward in a way that actually makes it, uh, pro provides a vision and an understanding of the issue for people uh, to, to kind of health and uh, function in a healthy way. And so I think a lot of conservatives rather than uh, take head on the fact that this this narrative has been in place for a long time, that the ideas of redistributive justice, the idea of affirmative action, the idea of racial quotas was at the core of the civil rights movement. It was not, it's not something that's been bolted on later by infiltrators, by, you know, far left Marxists after the fact, but that this stuff was a key function of the civil rights movement. Um, and it's it's very difficult to go in and and separate that fact from some of the social changes that people might like about the civil rights movement. And so because of that, they simply tell a story where actually Martin Luther King didn't believe in any of this stuff. He was actually a capitalist who was colorblind and and would have opposed affirmative action and and distributive justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion, inclusion. And that's the real legacy of King. And that's what Republicans stand for, rather than saying, actually, no, this this is what he stood for. And while we might agree with a line from one of his speeches, and we think that it is really important as a principle for how you treat individuals, that does not mean that, unfortunately, the narrative of the left has changed. Actually, it's been the same narrative for many, many, many decades. Um, and acknowledging that is far more difficult, I think, for people, uh, which is is why it's it's better to just lionize King and fight over the his true legacy rather than than take those issues head on. Uh, but that said, we've got a few uh, uh, super chats to pivot to here. So before we do that, Ryan, what are you doing? Uh, where can people find the videos and essays and that you write and all that stuff if they've enjoyed your work today? Uh, well, uh, definitely the proudest thing that I have at this point in time is I am the treasurer at the Old Glory Club, uh, which is a group of like-minded, uh, like-minded enough Americans have gotten together 
and actually made an organization that is supposed to represent uh, real American interests, um, as opposed to something, uh, you know, some political magic that just comes out of thin air that supposedly American interests. Uh, you know, we're actually fighting for things like unity, like old American values, uh, fighting for Americans themselves, uh, and writing and preserving and all this other stuff with them. Uh, that's the goal at the very least. Uh, we've started small. Um, I am writing on their substack, which is oldgloryclub.substack.com, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, in fact, I just had an article out on the American music tradition, which is a wonderful thing to read. All started because a European told me that Americans have no culture. So now I'm going to go through each and every American you know, <laughs> composer in its musical history, person by person, pointing out that, yes, we do, in fact, have a very beautiful culture. It just doesn't get talked about enough. Um, beyond writing, I have videos uh, on, uh, on YouTube under my name, Ryan Turnipseed. Uh, every Saturday I have a show um, where with or without guests, I will go through some topic, usually historical, but not always um, related to this. I went through the what the Dixiecrats, so the opponents of the civil rights movement, had themselves uh, said about it. Uh, you know, what were their party platform and all this other stuff out of their own mouth? Um, turns out about only, uh, you know, a twelfth of what they talked about had anything to do with civil rights. Most of it was... Uh, you know, talking about lawlessness invading the country and cities rioting and all this other stuff, you know, things you might recognize from the modern day. So um, that, that's just an example. Uh, those places are where you can find me. And I have a Twitter uh, also. Uh, my my name is on there, but I think the handle is Turnip Merchant. Uh, so those are the places. Excellent. Yeah, like I said, you got to enjoy Ryan because he does come with the receipts. You don't you don't want to say something offhand. He will he will come with all of the receipts and you will you will be made to pay. All right, so glow in the dark here for $10. Thank you very much, sir. He says, Malcolm X was uh, more his own man than MLK and would have probably been better for black communities than MLK. I believe this push now is to replace MLK with a new civil struggle. So I know this is something that uh, gets said very often. Uh, what do you think about this idea that maybe uh, Mal Malcolm X would have been at least more honest and straightforward about his approach? Right, I definitely think that's true, um, and that he wasn't propped up by national politicians and all this other stuff because he was too honest sometimes, or mm -hmm. too bombastic, or anything else. Um, now, personally, I don't like him that much, uh, because he didn't have very nice things to say about white people, of which I am one. Uh, so I, I think there's a false dichotomy that people farther to the right can fall in on there. Uh, Malcolm X had, you know, he pointed out these people, so he's good, not necessarily just makes him more honest than the alternatives, which doesn't necessarily count for much. Um, now, I would say it is true uh, that if you leave people to their own devices, they will just naturally fall into their own communities and not really venture outside of it too much, uh, which is why you had the government forcing things like busing and integration at bayonet point, um, because people don't just naturally integrate, um, as it turns out. Uh, I'm not going to make any other inferences from there because that's, you know, I'm, that's not what I'm read up on. Um, it just seems to me to be easily observable throughout history uh, that people will naturally separate and they will build strong communities on their own for their own, um, which makes Malcolm X's uh, sort of uh, intellectual basis in separation much uh, more appealing than MLK's forced integration, mobilize the National Guard to send people to new schools and all this other stuff.
Well, and I think that's why people can be shocked by videos of people like Muhammad Ali who come out and say this stuff very explicitly. Muhammad Ali would say, you know, yeah, yeah, I value every person, but, you know, that we should be separate. And this is something that I think people are shocked to find was a big part of the uh, civil rights movement, that this was, it was not always integrationist rhetoric, that actually there are many people active in the civil rights movement that felt very differently about uh, the solutions or ways in which the, you know, uh, people should conduct themselves to kind of solve the, the problems that were apparent at the time. Uh, so Prince of Parma for 14 of something I'm not sure, but it says it looks like it's 75 cents for yeah. real friends. South African Rand. It was Rand. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, even even for relapsed journalists. Yeah, I appreciate you not holding my status as a uh, previous status as a journalist against me. Uh, I have gone through the 12 step program. I did attempt to make amends. Some say I've fallen off the wagon, turned in the chip. Uh, I hope what I'm doing now is a little better than average journalism, but I, I will I will let you be the judge at the end of the day. I can I can only uh, do my best to make amends for for my previous life. Uh, let's see. Glow in the dark here again. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Talking about Malcolm X. He says, reason I believe X would have been better than, uh, than MLK was he'd be forced the issue. He could have resolved it instead of being subverted by the state to adopt CRT. And I think, yeah, again, that just kind of goes back to uh, X, Malcolm X being far more forward about many of the things. It would not have been uh, such a circuitous route to continuing to push many of the things that uh, worked their way into uh, kind of our discussion today. Uh, let's see. Uh, Gamer Soup here. Thank you very much for your donation. I've always had the unpopular opinion that Malcolm X was more based than MLK. There's a reason why he's not in mainstream as MLK. Look up his old interviews and you'll see why. So yeah, again, uh, we, we've kind of already touched on that one, so we're not going to go at length, but we, we appreciate it. it. does seem like a lot of people appreciate, even if they don't agree with uh, Malcolm X, his uh, his honesty and his straightforwardness with kind of what he was uh, right. and it, really advocating. Quickly, there sure. is just one thing there, uh, the, the point about being more mainstreamed. And there is, you know, this is two sides of the same coin. Civil rights, more based or less based, one slightly more mainstream than the other. Um, mm. The opposition, though, I would hazard a bet that not even a percent of the U.S. population has read or heard something from the civil rights op opponents, like a speech or something. Um, and that's something that I was wanting to do also at the Old Glory Club, is I have an article out about the 1957 Civil Rights Act, you know, the one that started the whole legislative wage, or wave, rather. Um, you know, you can... If you read into what the opponents were saying, you'll realize they really aren't mainstreamed and they make a lot of good points and correct predictions. So just something to keep in mind there if you're looking for people that are uh, you know, based and unmainstreamed and all the other stuff. Yeah, a lot of times the the opposition might you might get one article you know, cherry picked to sound as horrible as possible. And of course, there were terrible things said. Again, this, this is not to to downplay the fact that there were real problems here. Uh, but it's to say that there were people who did raise points at the time that were not just, you know, uh, really crass characters. Yeah. They didn't all hate blacks. Spoiler yeah. alert. They had yeah. actual concerns about, you know, political well-being and the society at large. Right. And uh, Prince of Parma again, thank you very much for your rant, sir. I don't know how what that one translates to, but uh, but I appreciate it. In some cases, it might be correct somewhat to disconnect a man's deeds from what he said, 
but that is just not the case for a pastor. And yeah, again, I like, I just want to state one more time because I do think it's important. Um, you know, one of the things the left does is they just go through every historical figure and it's character assassination, character assassination, character assassination, right? Uh, Thomas Jefferson did this, you know, uh, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln thought that or whatever, like there's just all these people. And because they ever said one thing or thought one thing or did one thing, then they're a terrible person. You can't ever, uh, you know, have, have any admiration or, or understanding of their work as a great, a great leader or person. And that's again, not what we're trying to do here. That, that's why we led with here are the ideological differences. Here are the explicit things that King believed and said and how they differ from the way he's portrayed in much of the conservative movement, how they directly contradict the things that are said about him. And then we also talk about his personal behavior, not again, because I think that's the key thing, but it is important to understand that as someone who is so regularly held up as a key moral figure, a gold standard for moral behavior that actually King led a very sordid personal life. Um, and that, that, should inform very at the very least him being held up as a moral figure of em, em, uh, emulation. I was going to say immolation, but that would be fire. Um, uh, and so I think that is it is really important for people to kind of understand that, even though that is not the main thrust of the differences between him and conservatives. There, are, again, you want to point to conservatives, even pastors that have had affairs. You know, you're you're going to find a ton of them, right? There's going to be no shortage. You can do that all day. Right. But but I do do think uh, his, the main point is his his ideological, doctrinal, moral differences with conservatives yeah there there are categorical differences between the two types of objections we've raised today exactly i think and i think that's really really essential we don't just want to do drive-bys on every every great leader i don't i don't think that's uh, the way to go uh let's see uh spasicus autisticus which might be the greatest username ever uh well done uh good show uh, or great show friends thank you very much uh, to be honored by a man with your moniker is, uh, is the highest praise that one can can aspire to. Uh, and then let's see here. Uh, Brad Barnes for $5 says, I think reintroducing alternative narratives to the civil rights era orthodox is very important to moving past the current troubles we face. Yeah, I think that's really key because, again, I want to make it clear. It's not like there were not problems here and then they're not the problems that need to be resolved and it's not that i don't think that uh lines from king again like the one that conservatives love so much that the judging someone by the content of the character isn't good that is a good line that is a good goal and a good way to address people but i do think that because the civil rights movement has been enshrined and is basically a third rail for American politics you can't talk about it you can't you can't show any other parts of it than its great moral success and you can't look to anything of its fruits means that conservatives have very serious problems addressing other issues. Uh, like, you know, for instance, when conservatives are talking about transgenderism, they think they're arguing biology. Uh, all, all credit to Matt Walsh, you know, the, the what is a woman movie is very funny. Uh, but that's not the real problem. The problem is actually uh, civil rights law. Like that's actually right. the, the that's actually the argument you're having. And conservatives don't even realize that they're having that argument. They think they're having an argument about biology. And so that that's a huge issue. And if you're not willing to touch these narratives, then you can never actually have a productive discussion on what they're about. Right. And our our very astute super chatter there has uh, understood the you know, the need for a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually I was uh, going through the congressional record. Uh, for I believe it was uh, 
the 88th or something. It was in the 80s, the something session of Congress. Um, and in 1964, I was trying to look at, you know, what were the debates going on? Um, I could go through my school library. It's a land-grant university, very large library, and find rows and rows of books about quotes and speeches and commentaries on the pro-civil rights leaders and politicians and public figures. I had to go to the congressional record itself to find the uh, the opponents. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and if you don't know what a congressional record looks like, um, it's probably about six point font, three columns per page. Um, they're terribly formatted. You can't control F because that doesn't really work on scanned documents. Uh, the physical copy is hasn't been opened once, and it's probably about this big. Um, you know, that's the work I'm doing because I do want to try to find you know the counter narrative. What were the opponents saying? Have their predictions come true? You know, what what are the facts? Uh, you know, as opposed to just what the government and all of its different accomplices today want us to believe. Um, and you know, they've been entirely buried by history, which is a yeah, I guess I just have to play an archaeologist now. You got uh, Ryan's out there with the microfiche and the uh, you know the magnifier going pouring through it uh, like old school. All right, guys. Well, I really appreciate uh, everyone coming by. I think this was a very productive stream. Like I said, wanted to lay out the facts, wanted to lay out the quotes in its own words, wanted to make the substantive um, kind of arguments and lay those uh, forward so that we kind of had a, a better understanding. Um, again, you you don't have to abandon a respect for treating people properly. Uh, well, while also recognizing that Martin Luther King, while he said that and was very right about that, um, had very different views than a modern conservative, was not himself a conservative, was not a member of the con conservative movement, wouldn't have supported these things. And so I think that is an important thing that at the end of the day to kind of excavate and understand so that we have a better understanding when we move forward with kind of who we are and what we want to talk about. So I appreciate everybody coming by. Make sure you're checking out all of Ryan's stuff. It's your first time here. Of course, I hope you're going to subscribe. And if you want to listen to the show, remember you can do so in podcast form. You can get it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you leave a rating and review, that really helps out with that algorithm and everything. So thanks guys for coming by. And as always, I will talk to you next time.